that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Then God answered Job from out of a whirlwind and said, Who is this that obscures counsel with words void of knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you will tell me. Where were you when I founded the earth? And tell me if you know so much. Ooh, what a powerful lesson from the book of Job. We hear from the book of Job, it's a portion of scripture appearing in our lectionary, in our Sunday readings, only occasionally, probably because it tends to raise more questions than it provides answers. You certainly don't find it under the category of reassurance in those motel Bibles that are in the bedside table, you know. When you're tossed about with many a doubt, you're supposed to pull them out. You can turn to a heading that says, Words of Reassurance. Well, if you read Job in that state of mind, you might be tempted to jump off the bridge. Watch out. Job is one of the most skillfully composed, beautifully written portions of Holy Scripture. And it's always found as prime example in college courses featuring, focusing the Bible, uh, as li- focusing on the Bible as literature. Those in the know say it was written five or six hundred years before Jesus' birth and is centered on an issue that has bedeviled theologians since the day when people began reflecting on their experiences of the divine. The issue is theodicy, that is to say, reconciling our belief in the omnipotence, the omniscience, the omnipresence of God Almighty, in a word, the providence of God, with the ever-present reality of evil, and the enormous suffering it triggers all through the created order. Job's message of providence is just what we need to be hearing at this time. It's a rejoinder to those who fear that God has lost his pizzazz, that God has lost her pizzazz. And it comes to us in a way in such a curious and obscure fashion. Let's look at Job for a second. After going through what we might call the tortures of the damned, that upstanding and righteous legendary figure who is Job confronts God. He wants an answer for all that he has suffered. He even threatens to take God to court for reprimand and for recompense. He's ready to sue God. Where is justice, he said, and all that I've been through, and why such devastating loss and intense pain for someone who is innocent of wrongdoing? Dear God, what is the deal here? Now, expecting God to explain, waiting for God to provide perhaps a spiritual nosegay or two, hoping that God would at least give him a hug of consolation, The Almighty pounces on the poor man. He upbraids the poor soul for his insolence, and he does so in a scolding tone of voice. Pull yourself together, Job. Up on your feet, stand tall like a man. Before you interrogate me, I have some questions for you, and I want straight answers. 
where were you when I created this earth? Tell me, since you tend to know so much. Who decided on the earth's side? Certainly you'll know that. Who came up with the blueprints and the measurements? How was the foundation poured? And who secured the cornerstone? And this come to Jesus moment with Job continues at high pitch for several chapters until the end of the book. God on a rant of probing questions. We have an Old Testament scholar, his name is Marvin Pope. He describes it as the Almighty assailing Job with questions he cannot answer about the wonders of nature and the nature of God and God's control of the world. In other words, God's providence. The purpose is to bring home to Job his ignorance and his folly as a human being in ever impugning God's wisdom and God's justice in the first place. In another commentary on this passage, a Lutheran preacher by the name of Catherine Schifferdecker, I love her last name, she says that these speeches of God at the end of the book of Job leave so many readers completely dissatisfied. We want God to explain things, don't we? We want to understand rather than to stand under. We want God to tell Job why he had wagers with Satan. We want God to apologize for all of Job's suffering. We want God to be at the very least comforting. Isn't that what God is supposed to be? Instead of the words of instead, in the words of William Sapphire, a commentator some 20 or 30 years ago, when Job questions God and wonders the whys and the wherefores of injustice, it's as if, says Sapphire, it's as if God appears in a tie-dyed t-shirt emblazoned with the words, because I'm God, that's why. Now, if I were given the task of ever translating this masterpiece of communication into contemporary English prose, I might go something like this. Why, you pipsqueak! I had to look up the word pipsqueak. There's a word there, and it, you ought to look that up sometimes. It'll curl your hair. You pipsqueak, where have you been? Look around, think, reflect, use your mind and temper your heart and exercise, please, the gift of faith that you were given. Or is it that your spiritual myopia prevents you from seeing and hearing and tasting and feeling that I am working my purpose out as year succeeds to year? I am working my purpose out and the time is drawing near and doing so in ways that obviously elude your expectations. But can you live with that as a human being? Do you have enough faith to trust me, to trust the plan, to know that there is a divine scheme? Or do you choose to fret your life away in what the prayer book calls faithless fears and worldly anxieties? You have a choice. This past week, as I felt my spirit sicken with the cries of those orphan children languishing at our borders, as I felt my gut tighten with what I perceive as immorality run riot just about every place I look, just as I felt that dark veil of despair start to furrow my already wrinkled brow, it was ever so helpful to remember that as a rather frail, clay-footed human being who happens to be a pipsqueak, me, when it comes to the understanding the cosmic nature of things, 
I don't have the capacity to see the big picture. I just don't. I have to remember that I walk as yet by faith, not by sight. And what is faith? We've got to go back to the basics, don't we? Faith is the assurance of what we hope for and the certainty of what we do not see, says the epistle to the Hebrews. And what is faith? An Al-Anon friend of mine came up with a definition one day that moved me. She said, why? It's giving energy to better possibilities, even when I can't see them, think them, feel them, or hear them. And what is faith? Why, it's a gift of the Spirit. It's given at those times when we're edging toward the end of our rope, or as the psalm said, when we're close to our wit's end. Of all the refrigerator magnets that have come my way over the years, the one that has stayed with me all this time says, my extremity is God's opportunity. St. Paul, we heard from several weeks ago, I carried his words with me. They're worth mulling over. Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now let me say that exercising a belief in the providence of God, in God's omnipotence, in God's omniscience, in God's ever-presence, in preaching a belief in the providence of God is no excuse for inaction on my part. I am not defaulting. I'm not trying to hide behind my piety. I'm not saying that I do not have responsibility in doing what I can to avoid making peace with oppression, making friends with evil. I am saying that I want my spiritual ducks in order if and when I am called upon to fight the good fight with all thy might, Christ is thy strength, Christ thy right. Hymns, uh, every sermon I've ever preached, hymns come to mind. Hymns have become such a spiritual sustaining thread for me. Footnote here as I quote that hymn. Back in the olden days, on the Sunday after Easter, this great cathedral of ours used to host a musical festival for all the children of the diocese. Choirs everywhere at that time. And it was quite an event. My first sight of Trinity Cathedral occurred at such an occasion, probably 1954 or 1955. That ever-so-small choir of Calvary Church, Osceola, came to Little Rock all 190 miles early on a Sunday morning to sing our hearts out. And you know I remember parts of the service. I remember at least two of the hymns. And because he's not here, I'll tell you a secret. I think John Stanley was the verger that day. He told me it was okay to say that one more time. <laughs> the two hymns from the day that stand out in my memory, what uh, is this? Rise, crowned with light, imperial Salem, rise. I can't imagine that being sung as a children's hymn on an Easter festival uh, at, a, at, at a choir, at, for choir music. I have no idea on earth what that means. I didn't know then and I don't know now. But the tune was inspiring. Rise, crowned with light, imperial Salem, rise. We'll need to sing that sometime. The other hymn was about the providence of God. And it's one that made it into the new hymnal, what I call the new hymnal, 1982. 
God is working his purpose out as year succeeds to year. God is working his purpose out and the time is drawing near. Nearer and nearer draws the time, the time that will surely be when the earth shall be filled with the glory of God as the water covers the sea. Oh, the providence of God exercised on such a grand scale. Even when my eight-year-old brain could no more comprehend the meaning of the divine scheme than did the brain of every man, Job. You know, it's worth a sermon in and of itself, this gospel lesson from Mark. It highlights the same theme, the providence of God. Keep the faith, it says, honor the trust that was given you. God is providential, no matter what your human senses are telling you. And here's the illustrating story. One of the, uh, the disciples are so afraid at the moment that they were about to meet their maker because of a fierce windstorm on the Sea of Galilee. Truly, they were tossed about with many a doubt as lightning crashed and thunder roared and drowning became an imminent threat. Jesus, as we might expect, slept through the whole thing. Now, what does that tell you? And when the disciples woke him up and screeched in terror, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Our Lord rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. The wind ceased and there was a dead calm on the water. He said to his beloved friends, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Notice that adverb there. Have you still no faith after all this? In other words, don't you get it? Can't you see? Can't you trust the plan? What's it going to take for you to believe that I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age, no matter what befalls you? On this subject of honoring God's promises, trusting the plan, exercising providence and the provident in the exercising faith and the providence of the Almighty, let's bring it down to our personal level. And the way that I go about that is my favorite spiritual story told by one of my favorite spiritual authors. His name is Frederick Beekner. Do you all know him? He was big as a spiritual writer in the 80s and the 90s. And if he's not dead now, he will probably be dead soon. He was a great preacher, a lecturer, an author, a seminary professor, he wrote a remarkable little book of self-disclosure entitled Telling Secret, and he talks about an experience of upheaval in his own life that brought him to his knees in such a place where he was at his wit's end, and there the providence of God was revealed to him in such a marvelous way. Beekner says as he approached midlife, he found himself having to come to terms with a number of family issues that he would have much preferred to avoid. His daughter was in treatments, treatment center for an eating disorder, and she was not responding to therapy. Her situation was triggering painful memories of Beekner's alcoholic father and his ultimate demise through suicide when Beekner was yet a young child. And simultaneous with the above, Fred was himself irritable, restless, and discontent with his job so much so that he left his position at Union Seminary and moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts and became a part of the faculty of Harvard Divinity School. This was in the middle 1980s. This was at the height of political correctness. 
Why, his first class, he opened the meeting, he opened the class with a prayer. That's what seminary professors do. And the student body booed him for doing that. No, we don't do that anymore. The next week he quoted Shakespeare and they said no, and they booed once again. That's sexist literature. And it went on and on from there, and he plummeted. He said as he finished the semester on a cold, wintry night, he found himself in a pit of despair. So he drove himself home to his Vermont farmhouse all the way from Cambridge. He went across the top of Massachusetts. You've probably been there on Route 2. He gets to Interstate 91 and he goes north. He gets off at Farm to Market Road 592. And by the time he exits the interstate, he says, I was utterly disconsolate. At some point on the road, I burst into sobbing tears and I cried the fundamental prayer of every human being. Oh, God, help me. And at that moment, on that lonely road, way after midnight, in the darkest place imaginable, both locationally and spiritually, Beekner said a large 1979 black four-door Buick sedan passed him. Have you ever seen a 1979 black Buick sedan? They're so big they have footrests in the back. On the back of this car was a personalized light and license plate and Beekner, in this wonderful voice, said, Oh, it contained the one word in the vast English lexicon of words that I so desperately needed to hear at that moment. And the word on the license plate was trust. Trust? Oh, it's the New Testament synonym for faith. It's precisely what he needed in order to get himself together to continue the journey home and to find comfort in the thrall of sleep. Trust. Faith giving energy to better possibilities, despite seeming evidence that says there are no other possibilities. Some months later, Beekner writes of the incident, and his scribblings are published in a local paper as a ministerial tidbit of some kind, probably written in the Saturday morning religion section. And was he ever surprised when he gets a call from a man who introduces himself as the vice president of the First Bank of Vermont? The man says that he does indeed own a large black Buick, that he often drives the desolate route on the farm-to-market road late, late at night when he comes home, and that he has a license plate marked trust because he is the trust officer for the First Bank of Vermont. The man comes by Beekner's house. He presents him with a license plate. It's in a beautiful mahogany frame with plexiglass, and it completely overwhelms the beleaguered professor. Beekner says, it was heavenly grace at my doorstep. It was the balm of, balm of Gilead incarnate. He reports that the license plate now hangs in his office and is considered the most holy relic in his possession. It's a simple word, he says, but it's a word that saved my life and gave me precisely what I need when I needed it. Faith, trust, trusting in the providence of God when it seems like there are no other options. So in whatever ways you and I respond to all that's going on in our world right now, and there is so much this past week has been a doozy. 
what's going on in our country, in our cities, in our lives, it's all over the place. I do hope we can make a response. That response might be in prayer or in acts of social justice or in speaking our own truth, whatever that truth is, wherever it is called upon. Or maybe it's in taking seriously our baptismal vow to seek and to serve Christ in all persons, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Just squarely, if you're called upon to respond to anything, keep squarely in mind the providence of God, his omnipotence, his omniscience, and his ever-presence, and do so with an open heart. I love how Bishop Curry sometimes ends his sermons He speaks of all kinds of issues, as you well know, all over the world. And he often ends with a song that he sings. He loves to sing his his hymns, as I do. This one is a very sophisticated, very complicated hymn that you probably know really well. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. God's got the whole world in his hands. And on this particular week and in the weeks to come, don't neglect to sing the second verse. Do you know the second verse? Oh, hold on to it. He's got the itty-bitty baby in his hands. He's got the itty-bitty baby in his hands. He's got the itty-bitty baby in his hands. God's got the whole world in his hands. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.